Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. participated and listened to such wonderful singing. I often imagine that when we get to heaven and we hear singing of uncountable millions of people, it will be just something incredible. Christianity is marked by being a singing faith and it's lovely to hear that tradition upheld this evening. Now, I've been asked to address the topic, building the kingdom in a secular age. What do we mean by a secular age? It's actually the title of a book published in 2007 by the eminent Canadian political philosopher, Charles Taylor. According to him, secularization first refers to the way in which public spaces have been emptied of God or of any reference to ultimate reality. It all goes back to division of church from state and that has been interpreted historically as anything from don't interfere with people's religious practices to don't do God in public. And Christians, particularly here in the West, are under increasing pressure to take their faith in God out of the public square and keep it to themselves. Secondly, secularization can mean the decline in religious belief and practice, particularly as found in the countries of Western Europe. But thirdly, according to Taylor, it speaks of the complete change in society from the situation years ago where it was virtually impossible not to believe in God, to the contemporary situation, where belief in God is just one option among many, and for many people not a desirable one. And in that last sense, the world to which Christianity came was at least in part a secular society. To that world occupied by the Romans, Jesus came. And when he was asked, should tribute be paid to Caesar, he famously replied, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. And the early church put it into practice. They lived as model citizens. They showed respect for civil institutions and they made a practice of public prayer for the authorities set over them, even though those authorities were very far from ideal. However, trouble soon arose when such authorities, first religious and then secular, attempted to prevent Christians practicing their own faith in God. First, the religious authorities in Jerusalem attempted to stop the apostles preaching in the name of Jesus. They refused and took their punishment. On one early occasion, God supernaturally delivered Peter from prison, but that did not always happen. 
James was killed, Paul beheaded, and Peter crucified. And it wasn't long before the Roman state attempted to capture the religious loyalty of the citizens by forcing them to publicly honor pagan deities. Many Christians said no, and they paid with it for with their lives. And throughout history, Christians have suffered from non-religious governments, and sadly, from governments that profess Christian allegiance. Every time I walk down Broad Street in my home city of Oxford, I pause in front of Balliol College at the little group of cobblestones in the road shaped in the form of a cross. And I think of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and Bishops Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burnt to death there nearly 500 years ago as heretics by the fanatical Queen Mary. And as they faced the fire, Latimer said to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. But there are people today who want to do precisely that. They'd like to extinguish that light. And not only is the existence of God under attack as never before in Western society, respect for belief in God is also under attack. And the result is that the precious Christian heritage that has informed and inspired our basic institutions for centuries is being lost to the coming generations. In the Western world, for many years, God and the Bible have been the foundation of ethics and morality. And society is becoming engulfed by ever-deepening moral uncertainty. And people, young and old, are floundering like a ship that has lost not only its compass but its moorings. Dallas Willard wrote, The crushing weight of the secular outlook permeates or pressures every thought we have today. Sometimes it even forces those who self-identify as Christian teachers to set aside Jesus' plain statements about the reality and total relevance of the kingdom of God and replace them with speculations whose only recommendation is their consistency with a modern mindset. We should have learned from history that ideas have consequences and the jettisoning of God will have the greatest consequence of all. The journalist Peter Hitchens, in his book Rage Against God, concludes that societies in history which sought to eradicate God from the lives of their people in the name of reason, science and liberty succeeded only too well in showing that good societies need God to survive. And when you have murdered him, starved him, silenced him, denied him to the children and erased his festivals and his memory, you have a gap which cannot indefinitely be filled by any human nor anything made by human hands. Must we discover this all over again, he asks, and goes on to say, I fear so. A new and intolerant utopianism seeks to drive out the remaining traces of Christianity from the laws and constitutions of Europe and North America. This utopianism relies for human goodness on doctrines of human rights derived from human desires. And like all such codes, full of conflicts between the differing rights of different groups.
These must then be policed by an ever more powerful state. Inevitably, it is the Christian churches who are the last stronghold of resistance to this change. Yet they are historically weak. Infiltrated by secular liberalism, full of uncertainty and diffidence. The overthrow of Christian education is a real possibility in our generation. The removal of Christianity from public ceremonies, almost complete. Secularists are even equating the teaching of religion with child abuse and laying the foundations for it to be restricted by law. The rage against God is loose and is preparing to strip the remaining altars when it is strong enough to do so. And by a strange irony, the altar strippers are led by a group that once included Peter Hitchens' brother, the late Christopher, alongside Richard Dawkins and a number of others. God is simply not credible in the 21st century, they chorus, and science has shown it. And their most famous name to date, joining their chorus, is the brilliant theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking of Cambridge. The pressure for us to privatize our faith is very strong. And when people of enormous prestige, in science particularly, say they don't believe in God, that diminishes the credibility of God in many people's eyes. That's a pity. We should take on board what the late Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman said. I believe that a scientist looking at non-scientific problems is just as dumb as the next guy. And perhaps you'll see it in a Guardian interview where Stephen Hawking was asked what he thought of heaven and he said heaven is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. And I'm afraid when I was asked to reply I yielded similarly to the temptation of the one-liner and I said by the same token atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. These people need to be challenged in public debate, ladies and gentlemen. And I do so not simply because I'm a Christian but a scientist. I do not like science being abused. Especially do I not like to hear young people being told they've got to choose between science and God to explain the universe. They must choose between the law of gravity and God, which is about as silly as asking people to choose between Henry Ford and the law of internal combustion is an explanation for the motor car. That great son of Northern Ireland, C.S. Lewis, reminded his readers that men became scientific because they expected law and nature, and they expected law and nature because they believed in a lawgiver. There's no embarrassment to me being both a scientist and a Christian because arguably it was Christianity gave me my subject and the cosmos still bears the fingerprints of his creator. The heavens still continue to declare the glory of God. And in the West it's very noticeable that what is under attack is Christianity in particular and within Christianity two things stand out. First of all, the supernatural claims that surround the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, his uniqueness as saviour. 
The early apostles took their stand so clearly at the very beginning. There is no other name given under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And my experience of life is that many intellectuals will put up with general talk about God. But once you talk specifically about Christianity's claims, that arouses their scorn. When I first debated Richard Dawkins, we were suddenly informed that we had only two minutes left each to conclude. So I decided to change tack and go for the heart of Christianity, the resurrection, that demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. And Dawkins' response still rings in my ears and in the ears of many others. So, he said, we come down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. Now, if he'd simply affirmed his belief that Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would have understood it. But to say that the resurrection is petty, trivial, earthbound is to betray a failure totally to grasp what the resurrection is and what it implies. Petty, trivial, and earthbound are exactly what the resurrection isn't if it happened. For it is atheism with its oblivion of death that makes us earthbound, petty, and trivial. As Jesus rose from the dead, it demonstrates that he is very much not earthbound and unworthy of the universe, but he is God and creator incarnate to whom the very universe owes its beginning. And in our contemporary society in the West, there are two competing worldviews, that of theism, Christian theism, and naturalism. The idea that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect with no God who created it, sustains it, or gets involved with it. And so the resurrection and the miracles of Jesus threaten to blow a God-shaped hole in naturalism. And that has been true since the very beginning of the church. Because as you read the book of Acts, you'll find the first objectors to the Christian gospel were not atheists. They were Sadducee and theologians who were naturalists at heart. They didn't believe in the resurrection or in the spirit. And they objected very strongly to the apostles, not simply because they were preaching the resurrection, but because they were preaching the resurrection in Jesus. They were saying that a specific resurrection had taken place, and that was just too much. And I'm mentioning these things because we're losing confidence. I see all around the world Christian churches weakening and buckling their knees at the onslaught of science that claims to tell them that the miraculous is impossible. I've written about that. I'm not going to go into it tonight. But it is actually absurd. And at the very start, they emphasize what was totally unique about the claims of Jesus, that he was God incarnate, and that he, the creator, had come into our world as its saviour. And in the early days of the church, Peter led the charge for the believers. Christ had promised to build his church out of people like Peter, who confessed him as son of God. And Luke tells us how that worked out in the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles is a fascinating tapestry. It has six major pieces, and at the end of each of them, 
there is a rhythmic refrain that tells us what was going on. 6 verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. 12.24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. 16.5. So that churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. 1920, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And then the final one, where Paul announces that salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. He stayed in his own rented house for two years and welcomed everybody who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at those verses, you'll see they alternate. The word of God spread. The church grew. The word of God continued. The churches were strengthened. The word of the Lord spread. And so on. It's the word, the church, the word, the church. That is a crucially important message for us today, ladies and gentlemen. Our Lord promised that he would build his church. It's not our church. And we don't build it. He builds it. And the way it is to be done, though, is that if the word increases, the church will increase. Why is the church not increasing in various parts of the West today? Because the word isn't increasing. People have lost their nerve. They've lost their sense of authority of the word of God. And so they have no sense of power when they seek to preach the kingdom of God. Because that's not preaching a building or an area of land is preaching the rule of God. And the man or woman who hasn't sensed the living rule of God in their lives can't preach the kingdom of God. It doesn't make any sense. And I repeat again, you will never get the church growing if the word doesn't grow. And the only way in which we can penetrate the culture is to by regaining our confidence in the word. And as you move through the book of Acts, and of course the book of Acts is very much like Europe was today when we get to the European bit. They knew nothing about the Christian God. Even less than people do today. And yet the apostles had the courage to stick by the truth of the message. And we see the result today throughout the world. We mustn't lose confidence in it. But you'll notice as the word grew, as the churches grew, as the apostles spilled over to the Gentiles and started preaching and teaching in the marketplaces, in the synagogues, in the places where people congregated, in lecture halls, in schools, in seminaries, they were constantly and increasingly challenged to explain and defend the gospel. Defend it against misunderstanding and misrepresentation as they sought to seek to persuade people of its truth. And more and more they were dragged before the law courts. And towards the end of the book of Acts, the gospel is on trial in the person of Paul as he reasons at the highest level about the truth of it to senior officials, governors, and even kings. What's that got to do with us? We are commanded to do exactly the same. The apostle Peter, who opened the door to the Jews and to the Gentiles, writes 
to all Christians. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Don't be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. A number of things stand out here. First of all, we've got to give a reason. A logos is the word in the original language. We've got to give an apologia, a defense, from which we sadly get the word apologetics, which is a useless word. And it's a word that has confused many Christians because they think apologetics is a subdivision of philosophy. Apologetics simply means defending the gospel. And we ought to use the word defense and not apologetics. Because if we did, we'd realize that all of us are called upon to defend the gospel. Not necessarily public, before large audiences, but you cannot open your mouth in a secular pluralistic society like ours without people misunderstanding, without people misrepresenting, without people having huge amounts of questions, and we are required to answer them. That's a commandment. But what's the problem? Well, Peter tells us, don't be afraid. That's the problem. Sheer fear. And I don't care who you are, we all get afraid. And the causes of fear are many. Feelings of inadequacy. Feeling of being counted odd and then ignored. Feeling of negative discrimination in work or society. Fear of looking small or of sounding intellectually weak. Fear of not having good answers. And fear can sadly pressurize us in our unguarded moments into pretending not to be what we are or pretending to be what we are not. How many people I've spoken to and said, oh well, I don't want to witness now. I wait till I get promotion. I wait till I'm the CEO or I'm a consultant. You'll never do it. We are recalled upon by Peter to get involved in what? In a dialogue. Do you notice what he says? Be always ready to give an answer to somebody that asks you. He's not talking about preaching. He's talking about engagement in the normal course of conversation. Do we do it? No, we spend hundreds of hours glued to the trivialest of computer games. Let me speak to the younger people, but I know a lot of older people do this. If we're going to be serious about reaching this generation, ladies and gentlemen, we'll have to invest time in it. People who think they can read the Bible for five minutes a day and then win the world are fooling themselves. And each of us can ask ourselves a simple question. How much time do we spend apart from our work how much time do we spend glued to a TV screen or a computer screen compared with the time we spend in Bible study and prayer? That'll answer the question straight away. We need to take this on board. I'm speaking straight to you not simply because I'm an Irishman, but because I'm glad people told me that years ago. And it was an Irish missionary to Japan whom we teased into discussing every night for a week till four o'clock in the morning, 
never thinking that the man had a day job to go for. He'd retired, he was still working as a pharmacist. And on the last night in Bangor, I'll never forget it, he said, now you boys, I've listened to you for a whole week, and he had, he'd said virtually nothing. Now he said, you listen to me. He said, you're a pair of bright boys, but there's something missing, you're doing nothing. He said, we want to change that. So I've arranged for you to start a tent mission next Sunday. I said, is there any alternative? Well, he said, I've heard you mention Operation Mobilization. Either you are by next Sunday on Operation Mobilization or you start a tent mission. I was on Operation Mobilization. <laughs> but how thankful I am to that missionary to Japan. Bobby writes his name. He just caught me at the right time. And he challenged me. And I don't know, there may be young people here tonight and you're wondering about the big wide world. And you've stirrings in your heart where God may well be speaking to you. Listen to what he has to say. And don't let it get drowned out by Facebook or Twitter. I'm glad I was brought up in a world where only the birds twittered. <laughs> or tweeted, for that matter. We need to get real, don't we? And it's important to talk about these things with passion from our heart. Now we need to learn to overcome fear. Everybody has a battle with fear. People say, oh, I can't talk to people. Oh, you can ask them questions though. What sort of questions? Well, about their children. And various questions about the awful things we read about in the newspapers and just gently learn how to drop God into the conversation and see what happens. That's the important thing because the biggest problem I meet is encouraging people to get over the first threshold of the first conversation with people who don't share their faith. And some of you haven't done it for years, is my experience, unless this is a very different audience. Content to go to church, content to read the Bible, content to see, uh, say our prayers, but there's no reality. Because the early church got real because it got real when it saw life. And I guarantee for anybody that the first time you lead somebody to Christ, it'll transform you completely. And we need to pray about that. It's never too late to repent and get involved with people. I don't know any people. Oh, but you do in your church. What about outside it? Do you play a sport? What about joining the bowls club if you're 95 and a half like me? <laughs> Anything to get through to people to be able to engage with them. But you know, the Lord Jesus was very gracious to Peter. He had hard times. He was a man of fear. He panicked when the girl asked him if he'd been with Jesus. And yet, there was something happened in his life that utterly changed him forever. He was puzzled about Jesus. One day he was saying that he was king, the next he was saying he was going to die on a cross. And if people wanted to follow him, they had to lose their lives and he couldn't make any sense of it. So Jesus said to his disciples, three of them, well, all of them, first of all, he said, you know, there are some of you standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A scripture nowhere that I'm aware of talks about building the kingdom. It talks about preaching the kingdom. And if you want the motivation and energy to preach the kingdom, you've got to see the kingdom. 
Now what does that mean? There are three accounts of the transfiguration in the New Testament. Matthew says you will see the kingdom of God. Mark says you will see it coming with power. And Jesus took them up on a high mountain and was transfigured before them. His face shone as the sun. And they discovered that there was another world above this one. Just as the sun in our sky is the source of all light and energy, so there is another world in which Jesus is the sun, the source of all light and energy. And it was that blazing vision that utterly transformed Peter from that moment on. Now the interesting thing is this. There be some of you standing here which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment someone tastes death, they will know that the kingdom of God is real, but it'll be too late if they're not believers. How do you get convinced, is the question, that the kingdom of God is real before you die? How do you get convinced? How would you know? How would you be sure? Now this is a hugely important topic and I'm condensing it into a very little at the moment. But it's that seeing who Jesus really is. And up on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, he had such control over space and time that he could make these people who were divided by centuries and time contemporary. And then they disappeared. And they heard a voice from the other world. This is my son. Listen to him. That's the message for you tonight. Listen to him. And Peter years later wrote in his second letter, we have not followed cunningly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, this was so real it got it into our hearts that this Jesus would come again. For we were with him in the holy mountain. And we heard the voice come from the excellent glory. And you weren't there. Neither was I. How will heaven be made real to you and me? And that's where Peter, the brilliant teacher that he is, puts his arm around us. And he says, I know you weren't there. But we have the more sure word of prophecy. We've got scripture. And you do very well to take heed to it. Knowing that prophecy is not simple guesswork by brilliant minds. But it's the result of God moving men by his spirit. And if you take heed to it. Like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day star rises in your hearts. What poetry that is. The day star is coming. Jesus is one day going to come up above the horizon of this world. But the purpose of the word of God, if we make it real in our lives, is to make that day star arise in our hearts before he actually comes. What does that mean? I close with a story. Our wonderfully gifted conductor tonight, Jonathan, reminded me that many years ago he got to know Nigel Lee, who was one of my best friends throughout life, a man who led thousands to Christ. 
And we were such close friends that we decided when we were younger that whoever died first, the other, would speak at the funeral. He, of course, thought I would go first. <laughs> but it wasn't to be, and at the age of 58, he contracted a huge tumor. And I'll never forget the day he called me in. I said, Nigel, he said, you've got to preach, man. You've got to preach. I said, what shall I say? Without hesitation, he said this. He said, John, tell them to do what we did as students at Cambridge all those years ago. Tell them to soak their hearts and minds in the word of God. Tell them to wait on God until they see the face of Christ appear. And then he added, they will have something to say. Do you want something to say? Well, you know what to do. Thank you very much. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.